The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I just remember the, our attacker carrying this large rock, and it was really hard for him to carry. Um, but And then he came over to Chris and, and hit Chris on the top of his head with it. And it, it really seemed like a dream. It seemed surreal. It didn't seem like it was actually happening. But, you know, he when he hit Chris, it, you know, it was going through my mind then of survival. And, and this automatically became the scene of, oh, my God, this man wants to kill us. And it wasn't until that moment that I, that I even thought, you know, you, that just doesn't cross your mind. It doesn't cross your mind that someone wants to hurt you like that. Part 1. We last left off with the mysterious murder of Jesse Howell and the disappearance of Wendy Von Huben. You also heard about Angel Matarino Resendez's childhood and the details about his lengthy history using the rail system to commit a string of crimes across the U.S. What authorities hadn't realized was that while Angel was burglarizing and trespassing, he was also indiscriminately killing people who crossed his path. Join me now as we uncover how Angel Resendez finally made it to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. You'll also hear about the other unsuspecting victims that had the tragic misfortune of encountering Resendez on his journeys across the U.S. Back in Mexico, Angel had a common-law wife by the name of Julieta, and young daughter he would often leave for periods of time while he crossed the border into the United States. It wasn't unusual for Angel to send a little money or small trinkets back while he was on these trips, but what his family didn't realize was that these small tokens were actually belongings from many people the Resendez had attacked and robbed. Over the years, Resendez would leave a string of deaths that wound through Texas, California, Florida, Kentucky, and Illinois. Unfortunately, law enforcement didn't start to put these crimes together until the rape and murder of Dr. Claudia Benton near Houston, Texas. 
Dr. Benton was a 39-year-old pediatric neurologist at the Bear College of Medicine. Born in Lima, Peru, she would later immigrate to the U.S. and settle in West University Place, Texas with her family. West University Place was an affluent community where homicide was very unusual. The Benton family's home was only a few blocks from the rail system. On December 17, 1998, Dr. Benton's husband George and their 11-year-old twin girls were away in Arizona visiting relatives for the Christmas holidays. Claudia had stayed behind because she was expected to give a presentation at a conference. However, she never showed up to speak. After failing to show up at the conference, her colleagues became concerned. After calling all day with no answer, one colleague decided to go to her home and check on her. But when she knocked, there was no answer. Sensing that something was wrong, the colleague decided to call the local police. After arriving at Dr. Benton's home, police checked all the windows to see if there had been any forced entry, and everything appeared to be locked, until they went to the garage. The garage door was unlocked, and once inside, police noticed that the door from the garage to the interior of the Benton's home was wide open. As they walked into the house, it appeared to have been ransacked. Jewelry and clothes were all over the floor, and the Benton's Christmas presents had been ripped open, and there was no sign of Claudia. Officers slowly made their way through the house up to the second floor, checking all the rooms. When they entered Claudia and George's bedroom, they found her. Claudia was face down on the floor, with her body covered with a blanket, and her head partially covered with a plastic bag. She had been brutally murdered. A large butcher knife was on the pillow, and a two-foot bronze statue taken from the mantle was on the ground. Resendez had used both objects he had found in the home to murder Dr. Benton as she lay sleeping in her bed. An autopsy report would later reveal that Claudia's right arm had been dislocated, and that she had been hit so many times in her head that all the bones in her face were shattered. She had three stab wounds to her back and several defense wounds on her hands, suggesting she had fought hard to defend herself. Dr. Benton also suffered 19 blunt force injuries to her head, including three depression fractures to her skull. According to court records, it was also discovered that she had been sexually assaulted. Typically, this type of violent murder would indicate a crime of passion due to its grievous and excessive nature. But what's most frightening is that Resendez and Dr. Benton held absolutely no connection. Stolen from the home was some money, ivory figurines, electronic gear, a meat cleaver, a guitar, and Dr. Benton's Jeep. Officers also found a partially eaten piece of fruit in the kitchen and a workable fingerprint on the broken cover of the Jeep's steering column 
which evidently Resendez had dismantled in order to hotwire the vehicle. The cover was carefully bagged for forensic analysis. The following day, the San Antonio police recovered Dr. Benton's stolen Jeep in a motel parking lot in San Antonio, Texas. Resendez would later testify that after he entered the Benton home, he saw statues that appeared demonic. He also said he saw medical publications in the home that convinced him that Dr. Benton had experimented on fetuses or performed abortions. On December 26, 1998, Houston police received a response from the Texas AFIS, Texas Department of Public Safety Automated Fingerprint Identification System, that the fingerprints on the steering column matched those of one Carlos Rodriguez, one of the many aliases Resendez had used in the past. In 1993, Resendez had been arrested for stealing a vehicle in Carson County, Texas. The Houston Police Department then contacted the Carson County Sheriff's Department and obtained a set of 10 fingerprints that had been taken off Resendez using the false name of Carlos back in 1993. Authorities from the local, state, and federal levels were all looking for a man they had no real information on. Resendez's fingerprints were then sent to the Western Identification Network, WIN, to search for other matches. The California Department of Justice's AFIS database, which was connected to WIN, found another fingerprint match on Resendez. His fingerprints had been entered into the California Department of Justice's database following an arrest in August 18, 1995, in San Bernardino, where he had been charged for trespassing on railroad property while carrying a loaded firearm. Resendez's 10 prints were then sent to the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division for a check on the FBI's NCIC database. Finally, on January 5, 1999, as the FBI were connecting all the dots with Resendez's prints popping up in various database systems, they started to realize that all the crimes by the different names had actually been committed by the same man. Now with fingerprints in hand, DNA from the sexual assault of Dr. Benton, they were able to start tying Resendez to his other crimes and murders. A year earlier, Two University of Kentucky students had been attacked near the railroad, but they never found the attacker. Holly K. Dunn had been out to a party with her boyfriend, Christopher Meyer, when they decided to leave and go for a walk near the railroad tracks. I was excited for the year. I was going to do better than I had ever done before. I was going to get better grades than I had ever gotten. And I was really excited for the year. I had this new boyfriend that I had been dating during the summer and remember thinking, I'm going to do really well this semester. I remember it was the second day of classes. I went to every class that day. I was really excited that I was actually going to all my classes. That was part of my renewing being a good student. I knew that I was going to attend a party that night with my boyfriend, and he had just gotten back into town. I'd seen him for a few moments, but he had gotten back in town after being gone for about two weeks in Maine. So I was going to see him really for the first time that night for like a date. 
So um, I was excited for that. I, I kind of spent the afternoon after classes relaxing, getting ready for my date, picking out what I was going to wear. And I didn't want to look like I tried too hard. I can remember just thinking, don't put on too much makeup. Chris was a very, very simple guy. Like he, he just liked the outdoors. He liked hiking. He liked, you know, just being outside camping. I just didn't want to look like I tried too hard. I remember when he came to the house where I was living to pick me up, he had a megaphone on his on his vehicle. And so he actually called out on the megaphone and said, Holly Dunn, come down. It's, we're, we're leaving now. I've come to pick you up kind of thing. I had this feeling of it was a date between the two of us, but there was about, I don't know, six people. He had a SUV and there was about six people in his car. So it was not just him and I. I did get to sit in the front seat, so I was obviously somebody important, but there was a big group of people in the car, and we were all going to attend fraternity party that was happening that night. Holly remembers feeling a bit uncomfortable at the party, because the only person she knew there was Chris. Chris could sense she felt a bit awkward and suggested they take a walk by the railroad tracks. Two other friends joined them for their walk. I had the idea of going to put coins on the track, and that was something that I had done as a kid, that you put coins on the railroad track and the trains run it over and flatten the coins. And it was just something else to do rather than be at this party where I felt uncomfortable and didn't know anyone. After about an hour sitting by the tracks, the two friends sensed that Chris and Holly probably wanted some alone time, so they headed back to the party. No trains came by the whole time we were down there. I don't think it was very long, but I do think Chris and I sat there and talked for a while. I would say no more than 30 minutes when we were approached by Rosendez. He came out from behind an electrical box. He kind of startled us. We did not see him there. They spoke perfect English. I could tell that there was an accent. He was just a regular guy asking for money. And that was the, our first encounter with him. Holly recalls thinking that perhaps Resendez was homeless and just in need of some money. She believed if they gave him what he wanted, he would let them go. He had put a weapon on Chris, which I didn't really realize was happening because it was dark and I couldn't see it. He had asked for money, and then when we said we didn't have any, he had Chris it down on his knees, which Chris did because he had a, a weapon on him. Then he went through Chris's backpack. So then it became like, okay, well, this guy's robbing us. You know, he's not just asking for money. He's robbing us. So then I think my mentality changed to, okay, give this guy what he wants, and he'll let us go. He goes through Chris's backpack, and he doesn't find anything. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like saying, I have a few dollars in there if you want it. I, I have credit cards. I have my ATM card. I'll take you to go get money. I'm trying to figure out what this guy wants. I'm, I'm saying, I have, we have a car. You can have it. What, what do you need? Like, we'll get it for you. What Chris and Holly didn't realize was that they had just encountered a ruthless serial killer who could not be reasoned with. We were up on the tracks, and he pulled Chris to the side of the tracks, like pulling him, and I looked. it looked like it hurt. I just followed on my knees down to the tracks as well because 
I didn't want to leave Chris and he had a weapon. Like I didn't, I didn't want him using that weapon on me. When I look back now and I think maybe you could have run away at that point, I possibly could have, but that would have meant leaving Chris at the tracks and like what kind of guilt or horrible feelings would I have if Chris was killed and I got away and I was fine. I didn't know still what was happening at this point. I mean, he had tied up Chris's hands with his backpack and he took off my belt and he tied up my hands behind my back with my belt. My mind wasn't letting me think this is something terrible. You need to try to get out of this situation. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't letting me think the worst of what could happen. I wasn't thinking you could be raped. You could be killed. Like those, that was not in my mind yet. Holly remembers Resendez acting erratic and not making sense. She wondered if he was high on something. We were on the kind of the, to the side of the tracks, and he kept going back up to the track to like look for somebody. He was getting stuff out of his bag. I'm trying to talk to Chris. Every time I would even just say a few words to Chris, he would come back and be mad that we were trying to talk to each other. I heard him rip like a shirt and he gagged us with the pieces from a shirt. And I actually stuck my tongue out while he was gagging me so that it wouldn't work and I could still talk. He tied up our legs as well with pieces of a shirt. So our hands were tied behind our backs, our legs were tied up. While Resendez was walking back and forth from the tracks to the couple, now gagged and tied up, Holly managed to free her mouth and hands several times. But each time Resendez would come back and he would gag her again. I just remember him coming to us looking like he was carrying something and it looked like it was really heavy. And that was the rock that he actually hit Chris with. He hit him one time in his head with a 52-pound rock. Holly now suspects that Chris had died instantly but at that moment had heard him making noises and hoping he was still alive. She begged Resendez to turn Chris's head to the side as she feared he was choking on his own blood. He goes over to him and he says, he's gone, don't worry about him. And then he comes over and he climbs on top of me and rapes me. I was flying above my body. I don't remember being hurt because I did start to fight him at this point. I think the rape was like the point where I was like, well, I'm going to do everything I can to try to fight this guy. And so I start kicking and screaming and punching and scraping and I'm trying to hurt him. And he stabs me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. And so I just stopped. I was studying his face and his tattoos, bars, everything about him, because I was thinking, like, if if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Then I took the mentality of, okay, well, I have to try to do something so he doesn't do to me what he did to Chris. So then I took the mentality of, I'm his friend. And so I'm going to help him. And, like, when a train would go by... Don't let them see you, you know, but really in my head, I'm thinking, please see us. But I was trying to be helpful to him. I was trying to have him see me as a person who was trying to help him, who was trying to be his friend. I talked to him about my family, but I truly thought I had developed 
somewhat of a just a trustworthiness with him that he wouldn't hurt me but I was wrong Holly feared after he raped her that if he did kill her, she would be found naked and asked if he could help her put her pants back on. And surprisingly, he agreed. To her, it appeared he was capable of showing some compassion. Helps me put my pants back on. He takes one of my rings. He takes an earring. And I remember trying to help him get the earring out. I thought he was just going to rip it out of my ears. I don't remember him coming to me with any kind of weapon to hit me. What Holly doesn't remember is at what point Resendez had grabbed a board, intending to kill her with it. I think my mind has completely blocked that out. He hit me maybe five or six times in my face. I turned over and he hit me five or six times in the back of my head. I think he thought he had killed me. I think he thought I was gone. The next thing Holly remembers is coming to and running to the nearest home with the light on. Bloodied and beaten, she managed to explain what happened to her, and the owner of the home called 911 for help. They were actually wheeling me from the emergency room to a room by the time my parents got there, and I remember in the hallway asking my dad, I said, Chris is dead, isn't he? And he said, yes. Holly learned later that Resendez had broken her jaw in one of her eye sockets. She had suffered a stab wound to her neck, and the physical, mental, and emotional wounds of being violently sexually assaulted. It would take her quite some time to heal, but she was determined not to let the killer steal another thing from her. You'll hear more about Holly's immense courage and her desire to help other survivors later on. Investigators began posting sketches of the railway killer in areas near train tracks and near the border, hoping to find more information that would lead them to the killer's identity. They even offered a reward of $50,000 for information leading to his arrest. A few days later, the reward was increased to $125,000, but no one came forward. Wanted posters described Resendez as 5 feet 7 inches, weighing between 140 and 150 pounds, black hair, brown eyes and a dark complexion, scars on his right ring finger, left arm and forearm, a snake tattoo on his left forearm, and a flower tattoo on his left wrist, has been known to employ any one of the dozens of aliases social security numbers, and birth dates, has worked as a day laborer, migrant worker, and auto mechanic. It wasn't until FBI were able to get DNA that they realized Resendez had been responsible for the murder of Christopher Meyer and the brutal attack on Holly K. Dunn. The manhunt for Resendez was on, and fear started to rise within the small communities that backed onto the railway tracks throughout the U.S., the FBI set up a Houston-based task force called Operation Train Stop, coordinating a national dragnet. The Union Pacific Railway alone operates close to 9,000 trains stretching over 32,000 miles of track in the 23 states west of Chicago, 
Special Agent Brian Loader, who was running the Task Force Command Center, was quoted saying, Leopards don't change their spots. He will continue to ride the rails. He will continue to visit hobo shops and shelters. The Houston FBI Task Force quickly logged several thousand calls, with sightings of Resendez being reported from Wisconsin to Texas. In Columbus, Ohio, police got a tip about a Hispanic man who had been seen on a freight train. Authorities searched all 75 cars, but found no one. Resendez was equally elusive as he was resourceful, having spent more than 20 years riding freight trains, burglarizing and working as a migrant worker to support himself and his family. He knew how to survive. Between his attack on the Kentucky University students and Dr. Benton, Resendez broke into two more homes, both owned by elderly women. On October 2, 1998, in the small town of Hughes Springs, Texas, a community with just under 2,000 residents, Police Chief Randy Kennedy came across a grisly crime scene unlike anything he'd ever seen before. After receiving a call from a concerned friend of 87-year-old Leafy Mason, the police chief headed over to a residence for a welfare check. After gaining entry into Leafy's home, he headed back to the bedroom, where he discovered her bloody, bludgeoned body. She too had been covered with a blanket and was lying on the floor near her bed. She had been struck repeatedly in the head. The weapon, an antique flat iron, Resendis had found in the house. He had snuck through a back window that was open. Homicides in the area were practically non-existent, and news of Mason's violent murder traveled fast. The tiny community was in complete shock and were terrified that a murderer was in their midst. A local resident named Betty Taylor was quoted saying, It is frightening to think it might have been done by someone we lived with. Someone walking among us. But unfortunately, the investigation into Leafy Mason's brutal murder came to a quick dead end, having no real evidence. Police Chief Kennedy then compiled a synopsis of the case and submitted it to the Texas Department of Safety's Crime Bulletin, a monthly publication distributed to others in law enforcement. Shortly after, Kennedy was contacted by a sergeant from the West University Police who was investigating the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. He learned of the similarities in the two cases and soon discovered that there was a growing belief that a Mexican national was traveling on U.S. freight trains, burglarizing and murdering people. Between murdering Leafy Mason and Dr. Claudia Benton, Resendez also broke into the home of 81-year-old Fanny White Byers. Fanny was found bludgeoned to death in her home, located in the town of Carl, Georgia. For almost half a year, Resendez seemed to go dormant. When he did resurface again, 
the time between each of his next string of murders had decreased. On Sunday, May 2nd, 1999, in yet another small town called Weimar, Texas, Resendez had struck in the night again, killing Reverend Norman Cernick and his wife Karen. The couple were found laying dead in their beds after Ted Neely, the congregation president of the Weimar United Church, went back to check on the couple. He had grown concerned after 30 minutes into the scheduled Sunday morning service, and the reverend still hadn't arrived. When he walked into the couple's master bedroom, he first saw Norman laying on the bed, on his stomach. Both Norman and his wife Karen's heads had been smashed, using a 16-pound sledgehammer that was found leaning against the wall in the bedroom. Within days, the Weimar police had a lead when they learned of Dr. Benton's murder five months earlier. Two weeks after the couple's murder, a guest speaker delivered a sermon to 150 morning congregation members of the Weimar United Church. Reverend Jim Tomasek opened his sermon by reading from Murder in the Cathedral, T.S. Eliot's play about the killing of the Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1170. We are afraid in fear which we cannot know, which we cannot face, which no one understands. There is always this kind of evil among us. When people somehow become enraged in some mysterious way, we don't understand. We need to deal with what is. I love cooking different things, but it seems like whenever I look up a new recipe to try, I realize I don't have three quarters of the ingredients in my kitchen, especially when it comes to the spices. So then I just give up and cook the same old, same old, because I don't have time to run out to the grocery store. That's why HelloFresh's meal delivery service is so great. Not only does it have several meal plans to choose from, but these delicious and filling meals come with step-by-step -step recipes, pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. We get the family plan and recently tried the shrimp fusilli made with roasted pepper, lemon, and basil. It was so good there wasn't even a spoonful left over. Now I look forward to cooking because I know I'll get to try something new each time without all the extra hassle. And our kids are actually excited to find out what we're eating for dinner now. And right now, we're able to offer our listeners $30 off your first week with HelloFresh when you visit hellofresh.com slash madness30 using promo code madness30. That's $30 off your first week of HelloFresh when you visit hellofresh.com slash madness30 using promo code madness30. Have you fallen into a rut and it feels like you wear the same thing every day? Stitch Fix can style you for every season, on your time. I just received my second fix, and I can't believe how well their stylist has captured my own personal style. And the quality and fit of every item has been fantastic. This is how it works. Just tell Stitch Fix your sizes, some information about your lifestyle, and your preferred budget. And one of their stylists will send you clothes, shoes, and accessories picked just for you. You don't even have to leave the house. Each Stitch Fix box contains five items that you try on at home, and you only pay for the items you keep. There's no subscription required. You choose when you want to get your fix. 
Get your first fix now at stitchfix.com slash madness and get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash madness and get started with Stitch Fix today. stitchfix.com slash madness. On June 2nd, 1999, U.S. Border Patrol officers stopped Resendez along the railroad tracks near El Paso, Texas. When they discovered he had no ID, he was taken to a federal lockup in Santa Teresa, New Mexico. After being fingerprinted, the name Rafael Resendez Ramirez came up in the system, but didn't show that Resendez was wanted for questioning in connection to what was at that point four homicides. There had been miscommunication between law enforcement and the INS, and they had never placed a lookout for Resendez in the system. As a result, he was deported back to Mexico. The mix-up would turn out to be a fatal error that would cost the lives of four more victims. Two days after being deported back to Mexico, Resendez made his way back into the U.S. and ended up four miles from where he killed Dr. Claudia Benton. This time, he broke into Noemi Dominguez's apartment. The 26-year-old elementary school teacher's body was found by her brother. He found his sister under a quilt that their mother had made for her. Resendez would later state that he killed Noemi because of abortion rights literature in her apartment, although no such literature was ever found. The very next day, not far from Weimer, where he killed the reverend and his wife, he broke into the home of 73-year-old Josephine Convicka. The widowed grandmother of six was found dead in her bed by her daughter. The murder weapon was a pickaxe. Investigators would later discover that Noemi's blood was also on the pickaxe, suggesting that Resendez had used the weapon for both murders. The killer's scent led tracking dogs a mile away to the railroad tracks, where officers suspected Resendez jumped onto another train. Then on June 15th, in Gorham, Illinois, Resendez struck again. This time on an unsuspecting 80-year-old father named George Morber and his 52-year-old daughter, Carolyn Frederick. Their mobile home was less than 100 yards from the railroad track. The final crime scene of the notorious railroad killer. Eventually, Angel Resendez's half-sister, Manuela, was located living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Texas Ranger Drew Carter was able to make contact with her and warned that Resendez could be injured or killed by law enforcement if he didn't turn himself in. Carter promised three things if she could get her brother Angel to surrender. One, he promised his personal safety while in jail. Two, regular visiting rights so that his wife, sister, and others could visit him. 
and three, a psychological evaluation. After communicating the terms to her brother, Angel Matarino Resendez decided to peacefully surrender himself in El Paso on July 13, 1999. They met on a bridge connecting Zaragoza, Mexico with El Paso. Texas Ranger Drew Carter, Angel's sister Manuela, and a spiritual advisor stood waiting as Resendez calmly walked across the border. Texas Ranger Carter will never forget that moment. He later said, When I saw that face, there was a little bit of excitement there. I finally said, This is going to happen. He stuck out his hand, I stuck out my hand, and we shook hands. For her assistance in capturing Resendez, Manuela was given the reward that was offered by the FBI. Some questioned why Resendez turned himself in so easily, and if anything, why he hadn't turned himself over to Mexican authorities. Steve Slater, an advisor to the Chihuahua State Public Safety Department, stated, We are looking into the homicides we haven't cleared, that appear to fit his method. He has family in Juarez, including his mother. He's been through here a lot. We certainly have railroad tracks, and bodies found by railroad tracks, and most are women. While incarcerated, Resendez gave an interview with a Mexican news channel. The reporter asked him how many murders he thought he committed. Well, in the two cases in Kentucky, there was one dead and one found alive. The two in Florida, they gave me immunity in Florida. In the Georgia case, they had condemned an American man and a woman for what I did. And they're happy now because they don't have to face those charges themselves anymore. In the Colton, California case, uh, I don't remember his name. He was a Puerto Rican homosexual. Um, there's three cases in Houston, but they're also investigating me on another case in Austin County. He told the reporter that he lives with a Great Depression. I've tried to kill myself, you know, see, this is how, this is how I lost my tooth. My life, you know, hasn't, I haven't always wished for death, but, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling bad, yeah, I do. I do. I ask for forgiveness for my wife and daughter because I'm not there for them when, you know, in those moments when they need me. His wife, Julieta, found it difficult to believe that her common-law husband could be capable of such horrific crimes. Before surrendering himself, she vividly remembers Angel getting a call and becoming noticeably upset. He then told her he had a problem, 
he hugged their daughter and cried. He told Julietta, if they find him, to let them kill him, and then he left. She told People Magazine, My angel never showed any sign of violence with me. He was a perfect gentleman. When I was pregnant, he would massage my legs and help me put my shoes on my swollen feet before work. She told People Magazine that Resendez had once taught English at a convent school. She said since he was 16, he had crossed over to the U.S. to work in tobacco, cotton, or rice fields. Because of his work, he was able to send home $140 a month. The Houston Chronicle reported that Resendez would also sometimes smuggle other Mexicans across the border. Julieta stated he gave a discount and only charged $400 a person. Apparently, the going rate was approximately $2,500. She also told reporters that while in the U.S., Resendez joined hate groups. They were anti-everything, she said. It ate at his soul. Hollis Stephen, a farmer in Kentucky, was shocked when he heard that the worker he had hired during the harvest time for the past three years was being deemed the railroad killer. He had thought so highly of Angel, and he had actually put him in charge of other workers. He had even had him stay in his home and eat dinner with his family. Resendez's entire family was stunned to learn what he had been up to while traveling back and forth to the U.S. They had absolutely no idea. Quoted in Newsweek, one of Angel's aunts stated, When he left here, he was good. Now he's a murderer. We're not that kind of family. An uncle said, I'm confused. I keep asking, how is this possible? His mother told Newsweek that he was always her favorite child, the little one, my beautiful baby. What happened, little one? What have you done? A jury of six men and six women was soon chosen to deliberate over the course of an eight-day trial. But Resendez made things difficult for his own lawyers, choosing to be uncooperative. First, he refused to be evaluated by a court-appointed psychiatrist, and then later refused changing the venue. His lawyers didn't think he would get a fair trial in Houston, where Claudia's murder had already gained a lot of attention in the press. In late 2005, Leslie Ribnick, Resendez's court-appointed attorney, failed to appeal a federal judge's ruling denying a writ of habeas corpus. At that juncture, the Mexican government, which opposes capital punishment, hired Jack Zimmerman to handle the case. Zimmerman said that his client hadn't received fair treatment in the state's criminal justice system and was quoted saying, This is a deadly serious thing. When we say the rule of law doesn't apply because you are not a U.S. citizen, when we say it doesn't apply because you've admitted killing people, then the rule of law doesn't apply to all of us. During Angel's competency hearing, experts testified that Resendez did not believe he could be killed by lethal injection. Resendez's lawyer argued that his client was schizophrenic and was not competent to be executed. He said, From the beginning, I said that if Resendez was sane, then certainly in my judgment, he qualified for the death penalty, but he's not. Then we should enforce the law and not bow to public pressure. 
I don't think we got the right results. But a psychiatrist testifying in behalf of the prosecution disagreed. Dr. Raymond Laval testified that Resendez knew exactly what he was doing when he murdered Dr. Benton and the others. He did agree that Resendez did possess an unhealthy view of women and of mankind in general and suffered from misguided fixations. Other experts testified for the prosecution, arguing that Resendez's resourcefulness in changing his name to evade authorities and his ability to enter home so quietly and make lethal weapons out of anything suggests he knew exactly what he was doing. Judge Harmon, residing over the trial, issued a gag order to stop lawyers from talking freely to the press. Dr. Pablo Stewart recalls the emotions in the courtroom as explosive. It was a very emotional case. Because his crimes were so emotionally laden in Texas, when I was presenting the mental health information, prosecuting the attorney, they were yelling at me. They were challenging my veracity, and they were attacking me on a personal level, rather than just saying, we don't agree with your opinion. You're a good man, you're an honest person, but we disagree with your opinion. They were attacking me personally. Some of it gets a little racial sometimes. Like, oh, you know, Mexican guys are sticking up for Mexicans, stuff like that, which is really horrible. After hearing both sides, the court denied Resendez's lawyer's insanity plea. Over the next week, jurors heard from witnesses on both sides. But of the 20-plus witnesses for the prosecution, the most compelling was from Holly K. Dunn, the only known person to have survived one of Angel's barbaric attacks. There, she managed to look into the eyes of the man who killed her boyfriend and had sadistically assaulted her and left her for dead. I get subpoenaed, but I knew that I wanted to have my chance to tell my story in court for it to be heard. I wanted it to happen, but I knew it was still going to be very, very hard. But I was ready to have my day that I was able to tell my story and, and be a survivor. I had a nervous breakdown the night before it happened. I actually woke up screaming and crying when I was in Houston with my family, and I woke up screaming and crying, saying that I couldn't do it. And I think if my family hadn't come, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Thankfully, I had my family there, and I could get the support from them that I needed. I sensed the energy in the courthouse when I got there. I mean, I was taken in an underground tunnel secretively. I was taken to a room to wait until it was my turn, and then I was taken through a door that I found out later was the only door that the sequestered jury had used. I tried to not cry. I think I cried through my entire testimony. I was so upset. And what my prosecutor had said is, don't look at him. He'll be off to the left. 
don't look at him and just look at me. I'll be in, in front of you. Your family will be right behind me. Just look at me. And so I did that. I somehow turned off my peripheral vision. I knew he was there, but I did not look at him the entire time I was testifying because I would have broken down. And I could feel that. And I knew that. So I literally stared at my prosecutor. I listened to her words. I answered her questions. And then they get to that point in the court where they say, is the person who attacked you in the courtroom today? And, and I remember thinking, I know he's here. This is his trial. And they said, well, could you please tell us what he's wearing? And I thought, no, because I'm not looking at him. And then I had to look at him. So I look at him and he has a smirk on his face. He has absolutely no emotion. And mind you, everyone in the courtroom is crying. I mean, even the judge, I think, was crying. Jury was crying. Everybody was crying and upset. To look at him and for him to have a smirk on his face, I was just, I, I remember my hearing going into my head. I said, he's wearing a white button-down shirt, and I literally felt like I was about to faint. I think everybody sensed that, too. So the judge quickly said, defense, do you have any questions? They did not question me. And I was literally, the bailiff practically picked me up and, like, rushed me out of the courtroom. During the closing arguments, the prosecution reminded the jury of the vicious nature of Resenda's attacks on his unsuspecting victims. The excessive force and ruthlessness he displayed, not to mention the undeniable evidence, his fingerprints and DNA collected from the crime scenes. Resendez's defense team admitted that their client had committed these crimes, but begged jurors to spare his life. One of his defense lawyers said to the jury, our client recognized he had a problem, and he turned himself in. That is something. After only 10 hours of deliberation, the jury pronounced Angel Matarino Resendez guilty of first-degree premeditated murder on May 17, 1999. Although Angel has been linked to at least five Texas killings beside Benton's, including another in Kentucky and two more in rural southern Illinois, he was only convicted for Dr. Claudia Benton's murder. After being convicted, Angel told the court that he wanted to die by injection rather than face life in prison, but he wouldn't be granted that wish. After being evaluated by Dr. Pablo Stewart, a bilingual psychiatrist, Stewart reported that by March 22, 2006, delusions had completely taken over Mr. Resendez's thought process. of Resendez and the fact that he was a high-profile guy, it was a real high-security situation. So they had it all chained up and they had, uh, you know, a bunch of guards bringing him out. But he's just like a little short Mexican guy. He's sitting there with all these chains on in the interview room and I'm in there with him alone and I'm thinking, you know, I heard about all these murders. Well, it turns out he's just a little diminutive guy. And then I start talking to him and he's uneducated, and he's real primitive in his language. So, you know, I just go in there and say, hey, hi, I introduce myself and what I'm doing there. 
Then he starts telling me a story, but not the story of murders, but the story of his religious delusion and about how he's the, 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 the vehicle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord wants him to avenge the fact that people are killing babies and that abortion is wrong and that he went into that doctor's house and he saw on her computer that she performed abortion. So it was his responsibility as deemed by God that he needed to kill her. And so that's how we began. And then I try to act, ask him a little more specific question, but he, he, he couldn't get off the topic of his religious delusion. And I was trying to ask him because, you know, like the, the competency to execute, he needs to be able to know what that he's being executed for killing a person. And he says, the government is going to try to kill me because they want me to be able to reincarnate myself in Israel. He was not medicated, which in a way is more helpful for me as a psychiatrist because his symptoms were so blatant and so out there. But because he wasn't medicated, he was just stuck on this psychotic material. You know, I normally would want to, I'd start off with trying to get a family history and tell me where you're from and tell me about your mother and father and where did you grow up and how much school. I mean, that's how you begin a psychiatric interview. Or at least that's how I begin a psychiatric interview. But man, he just launched into all this crazy stuff and I couldn't get him off it. And, and a lot of times I had to just go in there and say, okay, now hold on for a second. Be quiet. I need to ask you if you understand that you're going to be executed because you committed a crime. That's how blatant, I mean, that's how overt I had to be to interrupt his train of thought because he wouldn't come off this religious stuff. Based on Dr. Pablo's assessment of Resendez, he concluded that he was incompetent to be executed. Holly shared her perspectives and what she thought determined if someone was sane or not. The finding someone that if they're sane or insane is really if they know the difference between right and wrong. And I truly believe that Resendez knew the difference between right and wrong. I think he talked about that. I think everything that he said and did, even with me, he knew the difference between right and wrong and he knew what he was doing was wrong. You know, I think anybody that has the capacity to kill people and to hurt people is mentally challenged in some way. I really believe that something's wrong in their mind, but whether they're sane or insane, I think is a big question because if they know what they're doing is wrong and you know, then they are sane. There's a, there is a sane part of them that understands what they're doing is wrong and they could choose to not do that wrong. I do believe that he was sane and that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Despite Dr. Stewart's findings, the court agreed with Holly Dunn's perspective on the insanity plea, and Resendez was ordered to be executed. Once on death row, Angel was connected to even more victims. Detectives from Florida's Marion County Sheriff's Department had heard about Resendez's crime through the FBI, and they noticed many similarities to the unsolved homicide of Jesse Howell. Marion County detectives wrote to Angel in prison, hoping he might be able to give them more information that would help them solve Jesse's case 
and find Wendy von Huben. Much to their surprise, Resendez responded immediately, admitting to both of their murders. He provided information about how Jesse Howell had been killed. Then Angel proceeded to draw them a map to where they could find Wendy's body. Back in Illinois, Wendy's parents had finally received the news they had been dreading. Wendy's body was found just where Resendez said she would be. Wrapped in an oversized army-style coat with the Pooh Bear wristwatch she always wore and the engagement ring that Jessie had given her. Between May 2004 and June 7, 2006, Resendez made several petitions and motions which were all denied. On June 7, 2006, the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals denied Resendez's appeal. June 27, 2006 was the date Angel Matarino Resendez had been scheduled to be put to death by lethal injection. An hour before the execution, Angel visited with his daughter, who was at that time seven years old, and also his mother. He was then taken from death row to a holding cell. Prison spokeswoman Michelle Lyons said he appeared calm and declined his last meal. Separated by plexiglass and bars, Resendez's family and some relatives of Angel's victims sat in the chamber waiting to watch him be executed. Strapped to a gurney, his feet shaking, Resendez apologized for his crimes. He said, I want to ask if it's in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me. For allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience with me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You did not deserve this. I deserve what I'm getting. Before drawing his final breath, the killer who claimed to be Jewish prayed in Hebrew and Spanish, chanting, Forgive me, Lord. The lethal drugs were administered at 7.58 p.m. Holly K. Dunn did not attend the execution, but sat with her family waiting to hear the news about his death. I had a, always a feeling that he could get out of prison and get me. I always just had that feeling of there could be some technicality, there could be a bomb that goes off that he gets out and he's going to come find me because I am the person who testified against him in court. I always had this fear of he's going to get out somehow and he's going to get me. I think with him being executed, I didn't have that feeling anymore. It went away. Post their time of death, when an execution is happening, 
I was like on the page where they post that and I was refreshing it like all the time just find out when his actual death time was. But I was surrounded by my my family. So I was in a good place. I saw one person die in front of me. I did not need to see another. Dr. Claudia Benton's husband later stated that Resendez looked like a man and walked like a man, but what lived within that skin was not a human being. He said that anyone opposed to putting Resendez to death couldn't comprehend the nature of evil or understand the pain of having to tell your children that their mother had been murdered. He stated that his wife was an extremely compassionate person and would have helped Resendez with food, money, or advice if he had knocked on the door and asked. The killer, Benton said, was a diseased human. Holly K. Dunn, the sole survivor of one of Angel Resendez's attacks, tells us the steps she needed to take in order to heal. I knew that I had to heal physically first. For the first month, I went home from school and my parents helped take care of me and I healed physically. I began the process of healing emotionally first by dealing with Chris dying. And I really dealt with Chris dying by being with all of his friends and talking to his parents and kind of creating this network of people that knew Chris and then trying to do things that he had done in his life because I didn't get to know him for that long. We had only dated for about three months. I think I lived the first year just recovering from the physical aspect and Chris dying. The year anniversary of the attack is when I had to deal with being raped. That was something that I did it in a support group. That was probably one of the last things that I had to deal with, and it was one of the hardest. So that's why I think I waited so long. But our support group really helped me with that. Just talking to people that had been through rape helped me heal immensely. That, you know, I needed to know that I wasn't going crazy, that other people had experienced the same kinds of things, and that really helped me to heal. Holly decided not too long after her near-death experience that she wanted to bring honor to the other victims of Resendez who had not been as fortunate as her to survive. Being the only known survivor, letting that, turning that into something good, that was my goal. That's the only way that I can kind of live that title. I would want all Resendez's victims to be proud of me. And their families, because their their loved ones didn't get to live that life. Their loved ones, all the, the people that he killed, their loved ones are missing that person. And if they can get any kind of strength out of me to know that he didn't bring me down, that he didn't get me, that he hurt me, but I'm resilient, then I want to give them that. 20 years later, and Holly continues to speak around the country and has also written a book about her experience in an attempt to bring hope to other survivors of violent crimes. In 2006, 
Holly was honored in Washington with the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Award for Outstanding Public Service because of her work advocating for victims of sexual assault and for developing Holly's House. I get this phone call from a police detective in my hometown, and he says, you know, we're going to start an advocacy center in Evansville, Indiana. We are going to have it be a safe place for kids and adults to come to be interviewed, and we want it to be named after you. We're going to call it Holly's House. Is that okay with you? I was like, yes, I want to get involved with that. And then it gave me something aligned with my passions that I could be passionate about. Created a legacy for me that I didn't necessarily start, but I jumped on in the beginning and helped found and be a part of. Justin Canary expressed that it took some time for him to heal and to open himself up to relationships and friendships after his friend Jesse was brutally murdered. When I was younger, as a teenager, I used church, and I was really active in church. So it was hard to let people close to me. In my 20s, I tried to drink. I drank heavily, used drugs to try to forget it. And for a while, you know, it's just, you. I guess you just learn to kind of go on with life. I had a real close relationship with my grandmother. She helped me. She was a Holocaust survivor. She helps me, you know, really process a lot of it. Being real close to my grandmother really helped me uh, put, put everything behind me. After Resendez's trial, there was a formal investigation by the Office of Inspector General into the various failures that had been noted in the system that gave Angel the ability to elude authorities for so long. Bobby Chicone, a retired FBI agent, explains that although changes and progresses have been made, the system still isn't perfect. Well, I think significant improvements have been made since 9-11 with sharing information between agencies and the government. I don't think it's perfect, and I don't think it will ever be perfect, because it will never be perfect from the law enforcement perspective, from if you're 100% only concerned with catching bad guys, it will never be perfect because you always have to balance the rights of privacy and civil liberties that people have versus law enforcement's access to that. So, like I said, as a pure law enforcement perspective, as a pure you know guy that used to be out there just stopping bad guys, I would want 100% access to 100% of the information all the time. But I also understand that not everybody has 100% integrity. And so when you put all of those eggs in one basket, if somebody bad gets access to that, it could be catastrophic. Innocent people can be hurt by that. You know, I understand that there's always going to be that balance. Now, where you strike that balance, which end of that spectrum, be it pure law enforcement interests or pure privacy concerns, which end of that spectrum gets balanced more, which gets pushed down and the other side goes up, you know, that's that's a function of, of the American people and their will and talking to their politicians or voting people in office that do their will in Washington or in their state legislature. So it, it's it's a balance. And so I'll, I, I will say it, it will never be perfect from a pure law enforcement perspective, because 
it just can't be and shouldn't be, really. Because it's not perfect, there will be people that slip through those cracks. But those cracks are there for legitimate reasons. During Resendez's trial, Holly had been given an opportunity to give an impact statement, but she declined. She was advised by the detective working on her case that he didn't believe Resendez would give her the answers she was looking for. What I wanted to know was why did he choose us? Why was he there that night? Why did he hurt us? Those kinds of questions. And really, I would be really angry if I talked to him. Like, I would want to probably hurt him. Like, give me five minutes with him. You know, that's really why I chose not to talk to him, because I knew it would just bring on anger and feelings that I didn't want to feel. But if I could talk to him today, I, I would want to know those things still. And just to let him know really how much he hurt me and hurt other people's lives. He heard it from me in the court, but was he really listening? I don't know. And that's, that's the hard part is to know, you know, I could talk all day long, but is he really going to listen? Does it have any effect on him? And then is, if it doesn't, then why did I even do it? Because it just upset me. When we asked Holly why Angel was only convicted of one murder in the end, she explained the impact trials have on the family members of the victims and herself as a survivor. Really what I think happened is that the victims' families and me, myself, that one trial was enough for us. I mean, several of the victims' families went to that trial, and I think that one trial was enough for us. A trial is very, very hard on victims and their families. For two decades, Angel Matarino Resendez terrorized the small communities outlying the railway system in the Midwest. After he was captured, there was a great sense of relief. Jenny McKinney, a friend of Leafy Mason, remembers her as a strong-willed person, but always very thoughtful. She was always coming by with a jar of jelly or pie she'd baked. Jenny said, I miss her. A memorial service was held for Reverend Norman Cernick and his wife Karen at the United Church four days after the brutal murder. 1,200 people attended to pay their respects. When it was Mark Cernick's chance to speak, he asked why. This was not God's will, he said. This was a human choice. God gave us choices. Choices between good and evil. Choices between love and hate. Choices to either destroy or create. He also talked about the spiritual seeds that the couple had planted and how it was now up to everyone to cultivate beauty and goodness in the lives of other people. As Dr. Stewart explained in Part 1, to try and explain or understand why Resendez committed these heinous murders is futile. None of it made any sense. He had no connections to any of his victims and savagely murdered them with whatever object he stumbled upon after breaking in. If you were one of his victims, it was a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that doesn't bring any comfort to the family members, friends, and communities of the victims' lives he took so mercilessly. 
Possibly the only comfort for them is to know that Angel Resendez will never be able to hurt another human being ever again. Now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts, The Landlord and Tenant Podmess. Hi, I'm James Hartnett. And I'm Michael Balazzo. We're the hosts of The Landlord and Tenant Podmess. The only podcast with the guts to ask the question, can a landlord and tenant be buddies? Now, this is a comedy podcast. I play a rich, mean landlord. And I play a young, naive, handsome, down-on-his-luck tenant. The character isn't handsome. Anyway, each week we talk about the crazy goings-on in the building. We welcome interesting guests like comedians, actors, athletes, and war heroes. War heroes. We also play some, frankly, dumb games. No, they're not dumb. They're very popular. So be sure to listen to The Landlord and Tenant Podmas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Landlord and Tenant. And Mysterious Circumstances. My name is Justin, and I host Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. If you're into a detailed, well-researched podcast that dives into everything from unsolved true crime to paranormal to any kind of unexplained mystery, then you might like my show. But be forewarned, it's unpolished and raw. Hopefully I'll see you there. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause